I started this whole thing with the intention of doing a comprehensive roundup of the caves of Washington State, but now I don't know. And I, so I think if you just open the door for other opportunity, you just, those spontaneous moments, you could do, get some really amazing stuff if you're I hadn't planned to encounter this decision. We were looking up at the pillar that rose out of the ground near the mouth of the cave. At the moment, it was all-consuming. Ben was talking in the background, but I didn't hear anything he was saying. I had tunnel vision. My every sense was bent on the pillar, and there was a deafening silence radiating off of it and rolling down the coulee. Everything that I had hoped to accomplish on this expedition was about to be thrown away. All of it. For this. I had been daydreaming about this expedition for over a year. Originally, I wanted to go out for a week, explore and document all of the caves of Washington State, and then write a snappy roundup review on them. At least, that's how I pitched it to my longtime friend, an adventure photographer, Ben Herndon. You know, it's hard to find people that are psyched on certain things. So when someone's psyched on something, and I think it, it would be good photos too, then I'm like, oh, oh. Ben flew in on his birthday. We packed up the car and we made ready for our expedition. There were six caves, all told, that I had found rumors or online information about, and those were the ones we were going to visit. I didn't know it at the time, but the amount of caves in Washington State is expansive. It shouldn't come as a surprise. There are 20 active volcanoes in the lower 48 states, a quarter of which are located in my home state of Washington. Mount St. Helens, Mount Adams, Mount Rainier, Glacier Peak, and Mount Baker are all sleeping dragons coiled beneath the earth. It would be a lethal blunder to mistake a volcano for a mountain. Both can be dangerous, to be sure, but one is resolute, steady, and still. The other is alive, a slumbering dragon that could at any moment awake and in a single breath both destroy and create. Probably the most vivid example of this is Mount St. Helens. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted, and in the span of a few minutes, she destroyed 230 square miles and reduced her summit from 9,677 feet to 8,363 feet. The explosive power of the eruption sent a shockwave that broke trees at the base 
and laid them flat against the ground. Enough trees to build 330,000 homes. The ash from the explosion shot up into the atmosphere, darkening the sky, blotting out the sun and covering 22,000 square miles with detectable levels of ash when she was done. My father, who was living in Tacoma at the time, a city that lies some 75 miles away from the summit of Mount St. Helens, saw the explosion happen. When he looked up, he thought that they had been bombed by the Russians. It was this same cataclysmic power that had created a honeycomb of cave systems some 2,000 years earlier. The most famous of which is the Ape Cave. The Ape Caves get their name from a mountaineering group who called themselves the Mount Rainier Apes. While exploring in 1950, they stumbled into a vast opening in the ground. When they explored further, they discovered a lava tube that stretches 13,042 feet, or just over two miles, completely underground. This was to be our first stop. at the first cave of our expedition, the Ape Cave, and it's uh, surprisingly nice up here today. There's a complete lack of snow in mid-February. We have way too much gear for this particular expedition, but um, better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Ben's nodding his head. The approach to the Ape Caves is more or less effortless. In the summer, you need a discovery pass, and the winter, a snowpark pass. But you can essentially drive a hundred yards away from the mouth. When you approach, it is a yawning expanse, straight down into the earth. You descend a small staircase, and then you arrive. Of the equipment I decided to bring with me, my most powerful asset was a Coleman propane lantern, 700 lumen, of soft, ambient light. The benefit of the Coleman lantern is that it throws its light in a 360 degree globe. There's something reassuring about this because as you descend into a completely lightless cave, it feels like the world changes. The Kawisu tribe have a story of a man who enters a hole in the ground. Inside is the world where the spirits of deer go when they're killed in the hunt. Along the floor of the cave, he sees water. And when he looks into the water, he can see mountains, fields, and lands unknown to him. He steps into the water, and he does not get wet, but emerges on the other side, miles away from where he entered. Caves are transformative. They are a place that holds magic and meaning to people. There's a level of science to this, too. It's the same thing we see in sensory deprivation tanks. When you're inside of a cave, there is often a complete lack of external stimuli. The complete absence of light, the muffled sound, 
the consistent temperature, all of these lend to an environment where your brain no longer receives signals from the outside world and begins to create its own. Shaman, mystics, healers, and scientists have used science like this for generations, millennia even. For the First Nations, it was a way to go on a vision quest and seek deeper meaning. Today, sensory deprivation areas are used by athletes to improve visualization and overall performance. Our goals on this expedition were nowhere near that altruistic. We were just trying to get a good story. However, the hundred-foot descent down into the earth, where the only light was what we brought with us, did begin to conjure certain images in our head. We've begun our descent, so from here on out, it's just us and the lantern. Ben and I moved through the cave at a leisurely pace. Every now and then we'd come to a new and interesting feature and we would set up. Ben doing pictures, me doing video. And it would take a while to set up the light kit, get everything right, take our shots. The thing about it is, the longer we stayed down there, the more we began to see. I don't know what that is I see, but every now and then I'll catch like, it looks like, well, light at the end of the tunnel. Light? Yeah. I but, feel like I can tell it because like you're, like my peripheral. Yeah. But then the peripheral, like that's better than actually picking up on things. Like subtle traces of light. Really? Yeah. I don't know if it's because you're, like your main part of your eye gets too much Information? Yeah, like it's overloaded sometimes. Because I'll sometimes I'll like use a peripheral and I'm like, oh, I definitely see something like Well, it definitely looks like there's light or something playing down at that end. Yeah, it probably is. At our leisurely pace, it took Ben and I just over five hours to traverse the entire length of the ape caves. While we were down there, we did see a few people, always coming up from behind us and passing, playing through, as it were. I never found the source of the light flickering up ahead. My best assumption is it's just a trick of the mind, a will-o'-the-wisp, playing along the moisture on the walls. For if we ever looked straight at it, it would vanish. It could only be caught in the side of the eye. The most prevalent experience down there was the moisture. Groundwater would seep through the roof of the cave and roll down in thick drops, almost like rain. All along the way, it would catch minerals in the stone and glint back in little flickers of starlight. I don't think I can stress the size of the ape caves enough. They're not just two miles long, but in points they expand upwards of 50 feet. These cathedral ceilings and subway tunnel-sized openings are large enough to drive a truck through at some points. The cave itself is anything but predictable. At times you'll find yourself in vaulted chambers, 
and the next you're scrambling over a boulder pile into a narrow tunnel. Claustrophobics take heart. At no point does this cave get so tight that you have to crawl through it. But there are other moments of technical maneuvering. Nothing that a professional splunker would be impressed by, but a few moments of scrambling. To better understand the cave, it would help to understand how it was formed. Long ago, when Mount St. Helens was spewing magma down her side, that magma would flow downhill, and the outer layer would cool into a dense rock. That exterior layer insulated the interior magma, keeping it hot and liquid. Essentially, it formed a drainage pipe and allowed the interior magma to continue flowing downhill until eventually it poured away. The cave now looks like exactly what it is, a river turned to stone. Features that you would normally only think of as water, you can now see in perfect detail, frozen forever. Waves, drips, ripples, even a waterfall all with the smooth texture of water, but made out of a glinting black stone. It's absolutely surreal, as if looking at the world through a negative. The cave itself hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. It's an extraordinary feeling to feel like you're part of something that's been untouched by human presence. As if you've slipped outside of the march of time. Honestly, the only true reminder of our current period was graffiti on the walls inside. It was few and far between, but there were places where people had tried to etch some picture or word on the cave wall. But it begged the question, what's the fundamental difference between that and original cave paintings from 10,000 years ago? Ben was the perfect accomplice for this expedition, not just because of his incredible skill set as a photographer, but his views on the world are complementary, as if we're looking at the same target on the horizon, but using two different telescopes. On the topic of graffiti, I'm not for it, but I'm more forgiving, I think. My reference point is another volcano from long ago. My wife Tani and I had taken a trip to Pompeii. The city is perfectly ensconced in ash from Mount Vesuvius. The poisonous gases from the volcano killed everyone in the town and then entombed it in the moment. There were even loaves of bread excavated from the city that were baking at the time. The city captured by the volcano paints a perfect picture of life in ancient Rome. For me, the most interesting part was the graffiti. I think as a society, we're very hard on one another for the inane things that we put on Facebook walls or actual walls. 
What's interesting for me, though, is that the stuff that they found on the walls in Pompeii was equally inconsequential. But now it's studied with great reverence because it opens a window into that time. For me, it's interesting to reflect on how little we've actually changed through time. On our trip through the ape caves, we caught sight of something glinting in the ceiling, and then graffiti on the wall. Vandalism is funny to me because, like, you think it's so trite and just bullshit and stuff. But then you look back, it's like Tani and I went to um, Pompeii, and all the stuff written on the walls is like, Clebius has a big cock. Or it's just like people writing their names. And like, just to please. Yeah, it... It really hasn't changed at all. <laughs> like, it's true. It's people true. are always trying to carve a little piece of immortality. Thanks to you for what will be remembered yeah. thousands of years from now. Yeah, people will come down in this cave long after we're gone and be like, Katrina loves John. Ah, yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's sad or profound, like... If there's something beautiful in the simplicity of that, or if there's just <laughs> something super depressing about <laughs> the loftiness of human goals, <laughs> or lack thereof. <laughs> oh, the shiny thing we saw was beer cans. Oh, is it just <laughs> stuck in the ceiling? There's beer cans over there. Oh my gosh. So yeah, I think it, it counts as depressing. The thing is, he's not wrong. There is a stark difference between trying to carve your immortality and just plain littering. We continued our way through the cave. At one point, we had to climb up a frozen waterfall of stone. At another, we scrambled over a pile of man-sized boulders and then continued on through a perfectly round subway tunnel-sized stretch. Eventually, we came to a hairpin turn, and there it was. This has been Down Below, Part 1, a Captain and Clark podcast. I'm Captain Chris Stoddinger. Please join us next time as Ben and I continue our expedition through Washington and all of her caves. Special thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music and for Tawny Clark for all her support and production value.